Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Indiana University's Kinsey Institute was founded in 1947 by famed sexuality researcher Alfred Kinsey. For over 60 years, the Kinsey Institute has been a trusted source for investigating and informing the world about critical issues in sex, gender, and reproduction. This week on Profiles, we'll hear conversations with two researchers from IU's Kinsey Institute. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a conversation with Dr. Justin Garcia. Garcia's research focuses on the evolutionary and biocultural foundation of romantic and sexual relationships. He's also an expert on hookup culture. But first, we'll hear a conversation with Kinsey Institute director Sue Carter. Janae Cummings spoke with Carter earlier this year. I'm Janae Cummings, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest today is Dr. Sue Carter, the director of the Kinsey Institute and a Rudy Professor of Biology at Indiana University. A career biologist, Dr. Carter has studied the endocrinology of love and social bonds for more than three decades. She was the first person to detect and define the physiology of monogamy through her research on the prairie vole, and her findings helped lay the foundation for the studies of behavioral and developmental effects of oxytocin and vasopressin in humans. Dr. Carter joined the Kinsey Institute as director in the fall of 2014, making her just the seventh director in the Institute's near 70-year history. As director, Dr. Carter has expanded the Kinsey Institute's mission to include an emphasis on the science of love, nurture, and well-being across the lifespan. Sue, thank you for being here. Thank you. You are a biologist by training, and you are internationally renowned for identifying the mechanisms behind social monogamy, love, and other emotions. What drew your interest to the Kinsey Institute? To be honest, I was nominated for the position by people who knew me and felt that I was a good fit for Kinsey. I actually wasn't even aware that the job was open at the time. Oh, wow. The Institute has had six directors since Alfred Kinsey's death in 1956, and your directorship appears to be the first time its mission has expanded beyond sex, gender, and reproduction. Now researchers also explore the science of love, nurture, well-being, and relationships. How are you approaching this new direction? Well, I think even though it wasn't explicitly described as a Kinsey mission before, we always knew that human sexuality and human reproduction occurred in the context of relationships. It's, when it does not, it has a whole different meaning. Sex has a whole different meaning. So adding this, these constructs is in part because we now have some biological information that helps us to see that these are real things. Love is real. Attachments are real. We've always known this intuitively. They were part of the arts. But now we have a science of love and a science of attachment. Putting sex and back into that mix is critical and vice versa. So love isn't just a construct or something out of the romance novels. This is... Love is used in many ways, the word. And it's a very powerful word if you think about what it means to people. So a loving relationship can cause you to be the most ha- to have the most happiness, the most joy, 
and the absence of a relationship, a failed relationship, can lead people down very dark paths, sometimes even to suicide or to expressing anger in a way that creates, for example, mass murders. So there's no doubt that love is real. The real question is, for us, what is it? Can we define it? Can we study it without destroying it? We're not trying to pull the wings off of the fly here. We're really trying to understand it in a context of both human behavior and also animal models. Your research has shown that a hormone known as oxytocin lays at the biological heart of the experience of love and sexual behavior. This has led to people calling oxytocin, quote, the love hormone. Um, You shared your views on this in a 2012 presentation at the Science of Compassion in Telluride, Colorado. Here's a clip. What oxytocin is not is it's not a substitute for compassion or love. It's not we don't have love in a bottle. I do think that by understanding oxytocin, we're going to get just a whole new lens on social behavior, mammalian sociality, the social nervous system, a deeper idea of human emotion, things like compassion that contribute to human well-being and health. It sounds like oxytocin is an extremely complex hormone with a bit of a branding problem. Can you help us understand its function in our systems, particularly where love is concerned? Well, Janae, I like the way you put that because branding is has been going on long before we used it the way we do in modern times. So the hormone was given a name, and the name was meant to be swift, translated as swift birth. And then people realized, well, it played a role in lactation. And for a while, up until the 1980s, you could find textbooks suggesting, medical textbooks, suggesting that oxytocin was only important in women, had no known function in men. That was completely wrong, Mm -hmm. completely wrong. But because it was thought to be a female hormone, it really was sort of pulled off of the mainstream of science, pulled out of the mainstream of science, Not in a malicious way, I think, but simply because people thought, well, if it only affects one sex or one gender, how important can it be? The answer is it's important to men and to women, but it acts a bit differently in males and females. If anything, it may be more important to men than women. Uh, It's very important to attachment in both sexes, at least based on on laboratory experiments. Um, There have been now hundreds, hundreds of experiments in which humans were given small amounts of oxytocin as an intranasal spray, and their behavior was studied. Every one of those experiments has worked in some sense. They don't always find that hormones, that oxytocin is associated with positive behaviors. Sometimes it seems to be associated with... um, feelings of distrust or feeling that a person is sort of outside of a group. There are many complexities to this. So the real interesting challenge now is to take oxytocin from its history as a reproductive hormone where it's still important and expand our understanding that it plays a role in every organ system, everything we know about the human body. There are oxytocin receptors present and important. Are there notable differences between the effects it has on men versus women? There seem to be. 
For example, some of the very first studies used fMRI uh, imaging, showing pictures of the brain. When males were given oxytocin, it seemed to reduce activation and sort of arousal. Females, it had the opposite effect, and in fact, it may have increased sensitivity to social stimuli. As the story has gotten more complex over the last almost exactly one decade, we've discovered that the sex differences are important, but even more important is the history of the individual. So a person who has a history of trauma, a life trauma history, which they take now in many many kinds of research, uh, they may respond in opposite directions to oxytocin from the sort of general population. Males are very mysterious. And, you often don't hear people saying that. Well, we have to be honest. And so the biology of the male brain often is identical to that found in females, but there are some notable differences. One is a second hormone called vasopressin. Vasopressin is a genetic sibling of oxytocin. By that, I mean that they, the genes that gave us oxytocin and vasopressin arose from the same ancestral gene. But they evolved into some kind of um, kind of a, a yin-yang or a dynamic dance, and they're always both present in both sexes, but males have more vasopressin in certain parts of the brain. The parts of the brain where they have more vasopressin will not surprise you. They're the areas of the nervous system that control defensiveness, protection, mm-hmm. attempts to guard and to sort of hold resource, like a territory in an animal, or in humans, something like money. Mm -hmm. So as we are beginning to understand the two, and this is a very early stage in this work, I think we're getting more and more exciting ideas about how knowledge of these hormones, not manipulating them, simply understanding them, can help us understand male-female differences and, in the process, inform us about why it might be worthwhile to raise male and female babies a little bit differently. The males may need more nurture than the females, for example. They're more vulnerable. We know that based on mortality and just who lives the longest. But we also know that there's something sort of fragile about the developing male brain. And part of that system that's different is seems to be based on this molecule vasopressin. Oxytocin fits into this by being present in both sexes, but having a particularly, in my mind at least, a particularly important role in helping the male nervous system balance out this tendency to possessiveness, to defensiveness, and allow nurture to emerge. Your study of prairie voles led you to find that the hormone oxytocin was key in these animals forming lifelong bonds. The media seized on this information, and you got into a bit of trouble for studying love, which you lamented until making a key realization that you recount in this clip from a 2013 presentation on the healing power of love. People really care about this. They care about these emotional states. They care about attachments. 
uh, we are more and more seeing that the whole evolution of the nervous system is based on our sociality. We have a big cortex because we're a social species. We are who we are because we have the capacity for love. And it turns out oxytocin's at the core of all of this amazing stuff. How did you reach this point? By thinking almost obsessively for 30 years, 35 years to be precise, about oxytocin. I was first introduced to oxytocin outside of textbooks when my first son was born, and I was given this an infusion of oxytocin to speed up the labor. And my first question after I checked the baby to be sure he had all the appropriate number of toes and so forth, was what has this hormone done to my child? I still don't have the answer. I'm still working on it. But in the process, I began to think that I had, and perhaps the whole field had missed the point, there had to be something major. If that hormone, for example, is not present, humans have a very hard time giving birth. Humans are worse, have more problems than other species because of our big heads. Mm -hmm. It's very simple logic. We have this big head. We have the challenge of nurturing the baby as long as we can inside the mom and then getting it to the outside where mom must also nurture the baby explicitly with human milk or a substitute. So now we have one single molecule allowing us to have that big head and causing uterine contractions so we can squeeze the baby out and then be there to be sure that we don't just walk away from that infant. Very few mothers do. And that after it's born, we have a way of both socially bonding and also physically supporting and nurturing the baby, nourishing it. All of that seemed to me so incredibly fundamental But I also knew that the hormone itself was being circulated throughout the body. It's not just in the parts of the body that have, uh, that's necessary for birth or lactation. The receptors are found in the immune system. They're found in bone. They're found in muscle. In fact, I'm not aware of anything now where there isn't some evidence that oxytocin receptors exist. When a receptor is there, then that means that that hormone, which is circulating through our body in the blood, can affect that tissue. That obsession, and it truly is one for me personally, led me to continue to read. I ran several conferences starting about 20 years ago. I started running conferences on oxytocin, trying to get other people interested because exactly 20 years ago, I had the first two of these conferences And at that point, there were, you could probably count the people doing behavior work on oxytocin on on both hands, but not more. Now there are hundreds, hundreds of people, and they're all out there finding something new and exciting every day. We're finding a role for oxytocin in aging. We're finding a role for oxytocin in maintaining bone strength, preventing osteoporosis. Those are two of the, for many people, the biggest problems on the planet. What role will your understanding of oxytocin and other hormones such as vasopressin play in your research at Kinsey? What I hope we are able to do at Kinsey and we're trying to do 
is to expand our point of view a little bit. We're not leaving the study of sexuality behind. We're asking, why does it matter so much who we have sex with? What is it about a relationship? What is a relationship? That's not a trivial question. And most people just experience it. They don't think about it. They only think about relationships in their absence. So if you have a a fight with a friend, a lover, break up, a, a colleague, then you worry about relationships. But when things are going well, we don't even think about them. But they are absolutely critical to the success of our species, a single human female all through history had problems taking care of offspring. If she was simply impregnated and left alone out in some sort of wilderness, she didn't do well. And even in modern times, when we have the economic support of, of others, so, so we don't actually have to grow our own food or build our own homes, uh, we still need the support to be able to to do the best job of raising our kids. So everything about life and reproduction and sex sort of circles around relationships. And as we well know, if if sex is in the absence of a relationship, it has a different meaning. Mm-hmm. If it's non-consensual, it has a totally different meaning. And we call that rape, and we get very upset, and we have a whole legal system our our culture's very, very concerned about relationship. We just don't exactly talk about it. Right. You're listening to Profiles in WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is Dr. Sue Carter, internationally recognized biologist and director of the Kinsey Institute. Biologists can go in innumerable directions with their research. What motivated you to pursue social bonds and relationships? I think that's what I was always interested in. I was mystified by the need for others and these feelings that you get even as a very young child. Why did I care so much? I I didn't articulate it in those days. I was just confused. You know, why does it matter? Why does it matter who you sit by in class? Why does it matter if someone's upset with you or someone cares for you? I just thought that was such an important question. Honestly, when I started, I never dreamed that there would be this kind of biological basis for what I was interested in. I viewed the world, I think, as many people do, as something that was mostly based on learning and experience, maybe culture, society. I would have been very shocked 30 years ago or even 40 years ago if you had said to me, that there's a hormone for love. I would have said, oh, please, that's not possible. Uh, Love is a human construct. But now, and after I started working with the Prairie Vole, we sort of accidentally discovered that they formed lifelong pair bonds. I was working with an ecologist. Uh, As you said, I'm a biologist, and my first field of study was ecology. And my collaborator, Lowell Getz, from the University of Illinois, where I was working at the time, had discovered that the prairie voles were living, one male and one female, in a nest until one or the other died, till death did part them. Okay, that that just couldn't be an accident. And when I realized that and began to work with him on the behavioral side of that story, I said, well, it has to be physiology. 
you know, something is keeping them together. There's some glue here. And I was at that same time beginning to have my family, give birth to my first son. And I realized, my goodness, this is so logical. It's so simple. There's something going on. It's around the time of birth and lactation. It's got to be hormonal. It has to be. And it's got to be acting. It has to be acting in very old parts of the brain, which is why we could see it in a prairie vole. And probably we were seeing in prairie vole something very much like humans experience when they form attachments or when the attachments break. So it, to me, it was extremely logical right from the start. I, I sort of saw the whole system in my mind at once. Back in the 1980s, really, it all became very clear to me. It took about 10 years for me to, to get rid of the prejudice I had from being a human and trying to think that everything was top-down, everything was cognitive, everything was learned, and to rethink that in terms of a bottom-up point of view, which is it's all about, not all, but much of our life is about how we feel. Mm-hmm. And that's not really learned. That's situational and experiential, but it's not learned. Alfred Kinsey bravely engaged in open discussion of sexuality in a time where very few were willing. But as far as we think we've come since then, most topics surrounding sexuality and gender and relationships are still taboo. Under your directorship, how can the Kinsey Institute play a larger role in those conversations? I think that the Kinsey Institute was critical to allowing a lot of people the freedom to live their lives. Kenzie himself was, as you said, he was incredibly courageous. He wasn't just courageous in studying sexuality. He was pretty public and pretty open about sex in a way that was just unprecedented and still is. The current Kenzie, uh, we're not re- we're not backpedaling. We're trying to move forward, but we are trying to put this thing we call sex which is so intimate and so sacred to some people, into a context that helps us to understand it. Just because sex is is taboo doesn't mean it isn't important. It it perhaps gives it more importance than it would have if it weren't considered a, a subject that couldn't be discussed. It's not the case that I think Kenzie has all the answers, mm-hmm. not at all. But at least we can start the conversations. And we also really need to deal with the fact that sexuality is disrupted by other things in life, like medical interventions, surgeries, medicines. So we've got to get more knowledge. We're desperate for knowledge. This is, you know, we're in modern times. And if we don't study something, we can't improve on the way our body deals with it. We can't improve on the fact that some of the things that we're doing to ourselves for in the name of medicine or, I don't know, smoking, that's bad for your sex life, you name it. There's an impact and we have to really understand it. In some cases, we can make it better. Okay, some cases we can't, but at least if the person's not surprised and they don't think somehow it's their own fault that their sexual feelings have changed, they can manage it better. Not many people outside of Indiana University realize that the Kinsey Institute is home to an extraordinary collection of art and photography. 
Are there plans to expose a wider a wider audience to those holdings? We hope to take some of the so-called Kenzie collections on the road. Many of them, these things that we have were given to Kenzie or to the directors after him to try to protect them. And one of the most compelling reasons for those collections, as I see it, is that this vulnerable piece of human history has often been destroyed. People may have had a collection of art that had some kind of erotic content. And rather than letting anyone know they had it, they may have burned it or broken the pottery or whatever it was. But a a few, a significant amount of that material was given to Kinsey after his report came out or given to the Institute as a place or a way to protect it. And to protect it not just as a piece of art, but also as a legacy of a time which we can never go back and recreate or understand. The putting the materials into the general domain, we're working on that now. It's a, it's a significant problem because a sort of practical problem is we don't sometimes know who the pieces belong to. We're not in any way interested in having children see our collection. And the collection, to be honest, in modern times is very tame compared to what's on the Internet. It's really benign. Absolutely. Most of what we have, you've seen some of the pictures, are really just human body. It's something that we as scientists and people who come to Kinsey interested in the arts want to have made available and accessible, especially to researchers. And that was what Kinsey wanted. He wanted that material to be there to preserve human history. What's on the horizon for Kenzie that excites you the most? Well, I'm a researcher, and to me, new knowledge is what we have to have. I think the last hundred years has been really the beginning of modern science. Really, the last 50, 60, 70 years since Kenzie is the time period during which we begin to understand the role of physiology and human behavior. We look forward to seeing that. I've been speaking today with Dr. Sue Carter, director of the Kinsey Institute. This is Janae Cummings for Profiles. Thank you for being with us. That was Janae Cummings speaking with Dr. Sue Carter, director of IU's Kinsey Institute. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today, we're listening to conversations with researchers at IU's Kinsey Institute. Next, we'll hear a conversation with Dr. Justin Garcia. Janae Cummings spoke with Garcia earlier this year. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Garcia, Associate Director for Research and Education at the Kinsey Institute and Assistant Professor of Gender Studies at Indiana University. 
Garcia's research focuses on the evolutionary and biocultural foundations of romantic and sexual relationships across the life course. A prolific researcher, Garcia has published more than 50 journal articles and chapters on human sexuality and relationships, as well as studies on the meaning, expression, and impact of romantic and sexual attitudes and behaviors. In addition to his roles at the Kinsey Institute and Department of Gender Studies, Garcia serves as scientific advisor to Match.com. In this role, Garcia lends his expertise to Singles in America, the online dating company's annual study on the attitudes and behaviors of single people in the United States. Justin, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Janae. I'm pleased to be here. You started your career at Binghamton University in New York. You worked in a lab that used rats to study the effects of alcohol on neurological functions. Ten years later, you're studying human, romantic, and sexual relationships at IU's Kinsey Institute. Can you walk me through how you got your start and how you ended up here at IU? Sure. Um, it's it's funny for me to think back on how uh, my research trajectory has changed and, and where the first laboratories I was in to the work I'm doing now. Initially, I was working in a behavioral neuroscience lab as an undergraduate student, and the lab was focused on effects of alcohol on neural development and risk-taking behavior. And I enjoyed that for a while. You have to weigh the rats and you have to um, separate the litters. Um, There were also administration of alcohol to look at their different uh, behavioral patterns. But I realized it wasn't the type of research I wanted to do. Um, So I moved over into another lab with also people who were studying animals, uh, at the time parakeets and budgies. Uh, We also did a study with alpacas. Uh, So I started moving more into this direction of thinking about animal behaviors. And at Binghamton, we had a really strong program in evolutionary studies that my eventual doctoral advisor, uh, David Sloan Wilson, is the director of. And I started to think, as we think about things like sexual selection and courtship and mating and animal models, how does this apply to humans? And what I eventually started to think about was, well, humans have this interesting relationship context for mating and reproduction, but that's also really important for survival. And it turned out that that piece of the puzzle was one that wasn't wildly studied. There's a lot of work on human mating psychology and human sexual behavior, but thinking about it in relationship context was actually somewhat unusual. Um, So I did my PhD at Binghamton in in evolutionary biology, and then I first came to IU as a postdoc with Julia Hyman, the then director of the Kinsey Institute and professor of psychological and brain sciences. And I came uh, on an NIH um, grant called Common Themes and Reproductive Diversity, and uh, I was fortunate that I was able to stay as a faculty member. Uh, So I've had this uh, interesting career path, I think, that I've had the opportunity to work with really wonderful people. And... um, I think a mix of uh, dumb luck and uh, asking questions that weren't being asked uh, has sort of allowed me to be here. I'm uh, thrilled that I met at IU in gender studies at the Kinsey Institute because it allows me to be interdisciplinary, to ask questions that sit outside the typical boundaries of disciplines and departments, that we can kind of think big and um, try to explore questions in unusual ways. And sometimes it flops, and but other times I think we can understand a little bit more about the human condition. You are a prolific researcher of human relationships. And one thing you are particularly well known for is your expertise in hookup culture. (laughs) What does hookup culture mean? And what does it look like? That's uh, thank you. Uh, that's a uh, a great question. It's a complicated question, um, and in fact, a lot of my colleagues in psychology often don't like that when I say hookup behavior, and then now I uh, use the term hookup culture, and they say, "Well, what exactly are the behaviors you're talking about? Operationalize this." 
And that's the hard part. And in fact, that's one of the questions that we that we ask. So what we're interested in and as we think about hookup culture is that it's not just the behaviors of casual sex or sex outside of a committed relationship, but it's the cultural context within which those behaviors occur. How are we inundated with media messages and ideas about whether or not sex should occur in relationships and whether it's okay if it occurs in, or not in relationships. Um, 2011, there was two big movies about um, casual sex. There was No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits. It's constantly in the magazines. Um, just uh, recently, there was a major piece in the New York Times and another piece in Vanity Fair asking questions about what's going on with hookup culture, um, what's going on with youth today, not necessarily engaging in the same type of relationships that or at least appearing to engage in the same type of relationships from decades past. So a lot of our work uh, asks those kinds of questions and, and theorizes on what might be going on. Is there really something going on? Does it, does it just look different? Why does it look different? And at its core, we're interested in a suite of behaviors that are uncommitted. Now, for me, my initial focus, uh, my dissertation was on the evolution of monogamy. So that allows me to ask questions about monogamy or infidelity or non-monogamy or casual sex. And I ask it in relation to what we think about the natural history of monogamy for the human species. So in the case of hookup culture, uh, the question becomes, why and when are people engaging in sex outside of relationships? And it turns out if we look at the cross-cultural and the historic records, sex outside of relationships is somewhat uncommon. And for humans, most reproduction occurs in the context of what we call long-term sociosexual pair bonds or long-term relationships. So casual sex is actually something that becomes quite interesting for someone who's interested in a species that pair bonds. Of all the primates that we know, 15% of primates that engage in pair bonding, about 3% of mammals more generally, of those that pair bond and are socially monogamous, almost none are entirely sexually monogamous. But they tend to not engage in mating behavior if they're not attached and pair bonded to some individual. Even if it's not the one they're having sex with, there's someone back home at the nest. So it creates a context for humans, casual sex, hookup behavior. That's somewhat different than everything else we know in the biological and social sciences. In research, you've argued that the rise of hookups is actually a cultural revolution. Um, let's listen to a clip from your 2013 talk at TEDx Binghamton called The Rise and Fall of Dating in America. For the last few years, our, my collaborators and I have been studying sexual hookup culture academically. And what we're finding... What we're finding is that for many uh, young adults, although they're engaging in these uncommitted sexual encounters, they're still looking for love. There's still a desire for a relationship. But what many college students are saying on college campuses is, but there's not really a dating culture. I don't necessarily know how, to, how do we go about meeting people? How do we go about, uh, in many ways, for a hookup culture environment, on a, on a, perhaps among many college students, but also older demographics as well, the date is initiated not by getting to know the person and then perhaps eventually something sexual happens. Rather, something sexual happens, you wake up next to the person and say, hey, want to be my boyfriend or girlfriend? Let's go to lunch. And we've somehow changed the very order with which we're getting to know people, what some people jokingly call a type of copulation courtship. So you engage in sexual activity with them and then you say, okay, this could work. Is hookup culture simply how dating works now or have we lost something? It's a, it's a great question, I think, at the core of uh, what is what the heck is it that we're studying and interested in. So for some, certainly 
people are still engaging in dating and people are certainly still having relationships on campuses like our own at IU. Um, at any given time, about a third of our student body tends to be in some form of romantic relationship. The question is, how do they get into those relationships? How do they start? And are those relationships happening alongside patterns of sexual behavior that are quite different from what we thought. I mean, casual sex isn't entirely new. It's been happening. Um, we, there's historical documentation that's been going on. But that it's really it's the relationship of casual sex to a dating culture and dating behavior that's quite different. One of the things that I've come to believe is that there's been two major transitions in for humans in the last four million years. And I know that's a lofty claim. Um, And there's certainly been a lot of smaller transitions. There's things like the rise of the automobile and drive-in movies and uh, 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 mixed-sexed parties that can change the way that love and sex looks. But for my worldview, there's two big ones. And I say over 4 million years because it's about 4.4 million years ago that pair bonding appeared to evolve in humans, somewhere between Artipithecus and Lucy in our anthropological history. And one major transition relevant for courtship was the rise of the agricultural revolution mm-hmm. um, as we moved out of the Paleolithic. And that changed a lot about human social behavior more broadly. And it also changed a lot about courtship because all of a sudden it wasn't just about finding a partner. But your partner was also tied in different ways to land and resources. Uh, That's true in many hunter-gatherer societies around the world. But there is something unique about the agricultural revolution, as best we can tell from the anthropological data, that changed relationship and social behaviors in all sorts of ways. And I think the second piece, the second major shift, has been the rise of the Internet. And um, when I first came to that conclusion, I thought, no, this is you're just being a, a, a nut. There's no, this can't be true. But really, it changes so much about courtship. And the reason I think that's important for hookup culture is because what we see that's different now is the way that people are connecting with each other. Um, for me, it's also interesting to ask questions about things like online dating or apps like Tinder, um, Grindr. How are people connecting to others? Well, for millions of years, you knew someone that in some way your family knew. Your family was deeply involved in decisions about mating and relationships. You met that person. You heard the sound of their voice. You saw their body language. You could smell them. You could maybe even taste them. But now we're seeing that people can fall in love over the Internet or over an app um, or over email, um, that we're connecting to people in all sorts of ways. And I think that that's helped push forward um, a real revolution in the way that we think about love and sex. So I think that um, it is a bit of a cultural revolution, but it's not the death of love. It's not the death of dating, as some uh, social pundits have claimed. It's a new face. It's a way that love and sex changes, but at its core, they will always remain as aspects of what it means to be human. So when I was still in college, I remember reading about an intimacy crisis, uh, young <laughs> young people, teens, uh, college-age students. And the belief was that their casual approach to relationships would make it difficult to form healthy, intimate bonds later on, like, you know, when we became adults and we're, we're trying to settle down for marriage. What are your thoughts on this? Is this true? <laughs> yeah, there's mixed data on this about um, is there really a crisis when it comes to things like hookup culture. Um, And I think the best evidence so far is starting to point towards no, that people still find relationships. People who hook up in college do, many of them, most of them do at some point find romantic relationships. There's no evidence that their relationships are more or less fulfilling or more or less functional because of their engagement in casual sex. 
One piece of this, though, that I think is important and complicated is it depends a little bit on what one's motivations were for engaging in the casual sex in the first place. And what research has shown is that if you engage in hookups for exogenous reasons because you felt socially pressured or um, maybe you had too much uh, alcohol or drug use and, and then casual sex happened, well, then that tends to be associated with a suite of negative outcomes. Um, including uh, things like uh, reduced self-esteem and uh, possibly depression and anxiety. But if you engage in sexual hookups for internal reasons, um, you say, uh, because I wanted to have sex with that person. Well, then it really isn't associated with that. And this has been a really interesting study done by colleagues at uh, Cornell and NYU who are trying to ask, okay, but what happens over time as we think about motivation? So in some sense, it depends on why you engage in these behaviors in the first place. I think there's probably a subset of people, at least from from some of our qualitative data that we've collected, there's a subset of people who if they're really active in engaging in casual sex, they may find some difficulty in starting relationships. One, because of um, sometimes they don't know what they want, but two, because there's still stigma. And the stigma is more towards for women. In a series of studies done at the University of Michigan, um, what researchers have found is that uh, women in particular are more stigmatized for engaging in casual sex, both by men and by other women. But they also then internalize it. They realize that they're being stigmatized. I found that in... The contrary view to the stigma is that casual sex, particularly for women, can be empowering. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something you found to be true? Well, okay, let me take a step back. There's uh, Gender scholars have been debating um, questions about things like casual sex and hookups. Who benefits? Uh, which gender benefits? Uh, what type of people benefit? And that's actually a much more complicated question than I think anyone realized. Uh, and it depends on the outcome. If the outcome are things like pleasure, well, it turns out that women orgasm much less in casual encounters than they do in relationship encounters. Um, They also report lower rates of pleasure. But what we found in one of our recent studies is that they also, women also report lower rates of desiring orgasm and casual sex. Now, this is sort of counterintuitive to the dominant thoughts about it. If it's just supposed to be casual sex, you would think you do it for fun. It's relationship sex that you would think. Um, One study said that it was, I think, 237 reasons people report for having sex. Um, So we would think in relationship sex, well, you might engage in sexual behavior for all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's about the relationship. Maybe it's because you're happy. Maybe it's because you're sad. Maybe it's because you're mad at your partner. Those are the complexities of relationships. But in casual sex, you would assume I'm just doing this to have fun. But in fact, that's not what we saw in the data. And it's been replicated. So what we're seeing is that there's a more complex story here. So in the case of hookups, we have to ask ourselves the question, women are more stigmatized for engaging in it. They have less pleasure outcomes. They have less uh, lower rates of orgasm. Um, what do they actually get out of it compared to men? And so there's a deep uh, and complicated question about gender dynamics when it comes to casual sex. There are certain scholars who have suggested, well, is this more empowering? Is it allowing women to say, I'm not going to be kind of shackled by these gender norms about that men can engage in casual sex? And we say, hey, buddy, good job. Um, And then women are going to be stigmatized. So it is a way to push back on those sorts of um, uh, sexual double standards that exist in the world around us um, and strongly exist in the United States still. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Garcia, evolutionary biologist and associate director for research and education at the Kinsey Institute. 
So you're an academic researcher, but you're also the scientific advisor for Match.com. And (laughs) for our listeners who don't know, Match.com is an online dating site. Why does Match.com need a scientific advisor? What do you do? Um, yeah, I've been working with uh, Match.com since since 2010. Um, their chief scientific advisor is my colleague and collaborator and friend, uh, Dr. Helen Fisher. And um, I, so I work with Helen and with the Match team to uh, try and understand who are single Americans. Who are this one-third of the adult population? Over 100 million people, adults. Now, for Match, this is important because this is their client base. These are the people that they're trying to help, um, that they're serving. Um, For us, there's also deep scientific questions about this. In fact, in the anthropological literature, there's few societies we know of. In fact, probably none with as many single adults moving in and out of relationships. Right, over 100 million people in the U.S. So in part, that's because some relationships and most people aren't single throughout their adult life. Um, it's that people are moving in and out of relationships more. Uh, most people in the U.S. do have at some point a serious committed relationship. Most uh, over 90 percent experience love at some point and uh, most still marry, actually. So for Match, the studies that we do with them is trying to understand how do people uh, go from single to partnered? What are the things they're looking for? What are they wanting? Um, but also, what's the experience of uh, a single life? Each year, you help create Singles in America, which is a comprehensive national study of singles in the United States. Um, the survey captures a vast array of data on this group, which includes their beliefs on love at first sight. Uh, let's hear some of their responses. Oh, yes, it happens every other day for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a chemistry at first strike. Yes, I do. We well, met at first sight. Oh, but it was the second day, actually. My vision was much better then, too. <laughs> I fell in love many a times love at first sight. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> what have you learned through your work with Singles in America? Um, so Singles in America has been this wonderful study that uh, Dr. Helen Fisher and I work with match group on. And we've really learned a lot over the years. We're now in our sixth year of collecting a national probability sample, so a U.S. census sample. So we have the right number of people who are 18 and 75 and across uh, racial and ethnic categories and across socioeconomic categories and sexual orientations. We've uh, done work, for instance, with Peter Gray, my colleague at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, on single parents. And it turns out single parents have to balance what is uh, the role of being a parent, often without a co-parent, and managing their own romantic and sexual lives. And it turns out that people with very young children often are more interested in being on the dating market. We've also done studies on orgasm and sexual orientation. Um, We've done studies on the role of pets in people's dating life. Um, And we've done studies on uh, what does it mean to be single attitudes towards singles. And we have a new paper we're uh, just about to submit on um, singles and stress uh, compared to married people. So it turns out that singles do experience more stress in a variety of areas of their life. Um, Often uh, people might think that relationships are stressful, but overall, um, and sociologists have argued this for a long time, as have biologists, overall uh, being in a relationship has uh, confers a lot of benefits, including psychological mental health benefits and also physiological health benefits. 
So our study with Match, The Bigger Singles in America, allows us to dive into this wide variety of questions um, and understand the single experience in the United States for the one-third of the adult population um, as they're moving in and out of relationships, um, how and when and why, and what does that experience look like? Uh, So it's really been a remarkable research study. It's the largest research study on singles um, uh, ever done. Um, and one that's gone on for so long, for so many years. I think there's one important take-home message what we've learned year after year in all of our data. A large majority of singles have felt deeply attracted, close to 80%, have felt deeply attracted to someone that they initially didn't think that they were attracted to. And um, almost a third of people have fallen deeply in love with someone at some point that they didn't think that they were attracted to. So one message there is that Love and sex is complicated. We know that these are complex pieces of our lives. But don't give up right away. And the data, the science tells us that that as you get to know someone, part of the courtship process is learning more information. Uh, certainly, if you have sex with someone, you learn a lot about them. But also going on dates and talking to someone and communicating with them, that process takes time. Often, I think it's easy to just assume there's always love at first sight. And for some people, there are at very high rates, and probably because the visual cortex is tied to the systems in the brain that are associated with bonding. But it can also take time. In one of our studies that we've done, we've been tracking this data over five years. And what we found is over the last few years, the Internet is now the most common way to meet a new partner. That tells us something is changing about the way we engage in social behavior, but particularly we engage in courtship and relationship behavior. What does that mean for all the scientific studies about things like mate choice and partner choice, that you can fall in love with someone, or maybe you could just meet someone you want to go for coffee with, and you know the purpose is just to go on dates, um, that you haven't maybe heard their voice or watched their body language or engaged with them in other ways. It is fundamentally changing the game. It's changing the rules of the game. And this is a game that is hardwired into the human brain. This is a game that's been played for millions of years, and it's changing the rules. So for us, this is probably one of the most exciting times to do this kind of research, ask these kinds of questions, um, because the pieces or the ground is moving underneath us. So I saw recently, and it was a study you were part of, we're now seeing Match.com babies. There, I think 5% of babies being born now are from Match.com relationships. Is that only going to increase? Yeah, what uh, the Match calls it, the Match-made babies. I think it's going to increase because it's just becoming the way people are meeting now. I mean, so when we talk to our students, if we ask them, you know, what about dating? Some of them say, well, I hook up and I'm not dating because I'm so busy. I've got so much going on. Um, Some say because they're not ready. They know they want to go to graduate school. They know they don't know where the direction they want to go in their life. These are part of larger sociological trends. Um, The age at first birth is pushing back to later and later. The age at first marriage is pushing back to later and later. So we're delaying um, this initiation into adulthood, what a lot of developmentalists call emerging adulthood. So this big gap of period between adolescence and adulthood that people aren't fully fledged. Um, young adults aren't fully fledged into 
young adulthood. So um, I think that what we're going to see is probably a, a rise, even more people turning to these sources um, to find relationships, to find people who have things in common with you, um, who have the same goals. Um, it's really a way to search. And the way to, I think the best way to think about a lot of these sites and this technology is a way to connect to people. It's not a surefire way to find love. It's a way to connect to people that with interests uh, similar to yours and to get out in the dating market. As a society, we are constantly bombarded by information about romance and dating, um, particularly with the rise of social media. And it feels as if we're nearing a saturation point. And I'm wondering if this has an effect on our perceptions and expectations of relationships. Do we have unrealistic standards or is this stuff helpful? Uh, both, I think. Um, I think that sometimes as we uh, – and I, we also have to be careful. One of our goals at the Kinsey Institute is often to get accurate scientific information out to a wider public. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there about relationships and sexuality that's not based on any science, not based on any data. Um, so our goals is, as researchers, as academics, is often to get the right information out there. Um, I think definitely you're right. Uh, we know this is right. Uh, we know this in our own lives that it can be overwhelming sometimes the information we hear. What do you do on a date? Do you make eye contact? Do you not? What, what, how should the candles be lit? Should they be? Should the light be dim? Because then you're, you're, uh, your eyes widen and you're getting more sensory information. Right? There's all sorts of pieces of information that float out there um, that can be quite hard to interpret into our lives. Um, on the other hand, I think it, what, it, what it is doing is it's speaking to a very real issue in people's lives. Um, love and sex are at the core of the human condition. They have been at the core of the human condition for millions of years, uh, cross-culturally, uh, historically. That, that will not change um, the role that love and sex play. And they play important uh, lives, and I'm talking about them together, but they're different. Um, the things uh, people around the world have started war for love. Um, you tend to not do that just for sex. But the intensity of these relationships, um, of their expression, People kill themselves over issues of love. People go into uh, experience deep depression over issues of love or falling out of love or being rejected in love. Um, these are very real issues in our life. Unfortunately, it has been too long that the scientific study of love and sex has been in the shadows, that it hasn't been able to say, okay, this is mainstream science. And this is not only is mainstream science, it's mainstream science that translates into all of our lives, um, what it means to be human, what it means to be healthy, what it means to be happy. So I think that we're moving towards an understanding of this work has got to be done. It's important. Um, and I think a better, a deeper appreciation of how that work can um, then be translated to the public. The hard part is, is exactly as you said, sifting through the, the good stuff from the nonsense. Um, and that's not an easy cha- a charge to, to meet. Um, uh, but I don't think we'll get saturated with it. It's too important to our lives. I think there's a belief that to study sex, one must be a quote-unquote sex researcher, Mm -hmm. which is not quite true. You focus a lot on interdisciplinary collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's um, uh, actually a colleague, my colleague Eric Janssen and I were joking not long ago saying that uh, some some really exciting work about sexuality is being done outside the field, uh, kind of with quotes around it. Um, so there is a proper field of sex research. There's journals, uh, there's the journal Sex Research. There's uh, conferences. There's um, of people who study sexuality. But in fact, what's so exciting is how sexuality articulates with other fields. Um, so when we think about public health, um, part of that is perhaps about 
things like condom use um, and STIs, but there's other pieces of health. We're doing a study now with people at the Fairbanks School of Public Health in Indianapolis looking at um, cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and how cancer diagnosis and treatment affects people's romantic and sexual lives at a time when we know that spousal support is so important to survivorship. What's the effect of diagnosis and treatment, uh, including in the case of women on breast cancers, those that might be on estrogen ablation drugs? Um, how do those affect sexual function uh, and dysfunction? How does that affect the marriage? How does that affect spousal support? So having these cores, we can then collaborate. Um, I think one of the things we really do, I do in my lab, is it's really it's about being interdisciplinary and collaborative. How can we, though, go ask questions about cancer and couples and survivorship? How can we ask questions about development and hookup culture and behavior? Questions about single parents and dating, um, th things about finding love on the internet. It's about finding these collaborative teams, building these teams that we can reach out to these other pieces asking where um, love and sex are. So I think one needs a core. One needs an intellectual hub for that. But reaching across disciplines... Um, I think the most exciting work is being done, reaching across disciplines, getting out of the boxes. Now, I say that as someone who's a biologist who has a faculty appointment in a gender studies department, which is quite unusual, um, probably one of the few evolutionary biologists in the country with that kind of an appointment, um, which has its challenges, but it also um, means it's exciting. It's a, it's a new territory to think about. Um, how do we ask new questions? Or maybe how do we just reframe the questions we were asking. So I think you're you're right. It's um, some of the exciting and important work is do, being done by reaching across these traditional academic lines and saying, um, let's let's dream up a big, let's dream something big that we can understand and solve. What do you say to those who believe that romance is dead? Oh, it's not. I don't think it can. I think it's too central to uh, the human species. Um, I think that the intensity of love, um, the I mean, so we can say that romance, how it's expressed, changes a lot in different cultures and has changed uh, over time. But the idea that it's dead, um, I just think that's not the case. I see it in uh, my students. We see it in our friends. We see it in our own relationships. It just looks different. Mm -hmm. um, but that desire for a romantic passion um, is a fire that burns in so many people at different points in their lives. And, uh, and it's so central to our physiology and our life history that I'm afraid that the, the fire of passion is not one that will be extinguished anytime soon. I've been speaking today with Dr. Justin Garcia, Associate Director for Research and Education at the Kinsey Institute and Assistant Professor in IU's Department of Gender Studies. This is Janae Cummings for Profiles. Thank you for being with us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.